there in the back. So, All right, so this morning we're going to take a break from the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to do that because uh, man, I feel like we're just going through a season right now that is particularly weighty. Um, and so, you know, as you know, this week, uh, many of us were following along on social media and on the news as, they, as people in the neighborhood and people throughout the community were hunting down, for, looking for this little girl uh, that had gotten out. And, and we, so we were following along with that. We were praying uh, for her safety, and uh, we all felt the gut punch as we got the, the horrible news that she had passed. Um, and so we, we've got that going on, and we have been going through almost two years of a pandemic where that doesn't seem to want to end, and we're just getting numb to getting calls and texts about so-and-so's in the hospital and they've got COVID pneumonia and so, so-and-so died of, no, I got a call yesterday from a, a buddy of mine whose dad died uh, from COVID in the hospital. And so like that just keeps hitting again and again and, and we're getting numb to that and um, my, I'm, I'm waiting personally for a call as my grandmother is uh, dying in the hospital from dementia and uh, I talked to her on, uh, I, I had her listen to me on FaceTime yesterday and just looked at her skeleton-framed body as she's wasting away in the hospital. Um, and uh, this week we had the news that uh, a pastor in Nashville was taking his daughter to college, and they got in a car crash and both died. And it's just like it doesn't stop. And it's like, man, what is happening? And so it, it, seems, it seems weighty. And so it seemed appropriate to me to, to take a book, break from the book of Acts uh, and, to, and to talk about how do we navigate suffering? How do we navigate pain and heartache and grief and loss and all those things, all those emotions that are swirling around in us? And like, this seems like the world never lets up, never gives us a break, um, and that this, this suffering is just relentless. Um, and so how are Christians supposed to navigate this? That's really the question I want us to look at. How are Christians supposed to navigate this? Are we supposed to just smile and keep our heads up and, and because, because we know how things turn out in the end, because they're in a better place? Are we supposed to just like, hey, everything's fine. Everyone's dying, but I'm okay. You know, you've maybe seen that meme, that little cartoon where there's the dog and he's sitting in the chair and everything's burning down around him and he says, I'm okay. Everything's fine. Are we supposed to be like that? Is that how we're supposed to act? When there is agony and loss, no. And so how do we as faithful followers of Jesus navigate the gut punches of heartache and agony and loss? There are two texts I want to look at this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And both of them, I think, help us navigate suffering. So if you, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Psalm 77 uh, and then John chapter 11. Psalm 77 and John 11. There are really four, four things, really four steps, four things that we do that I want us to see this morning from these texts um, that can kind of function as a pattern for us, a kind of a, a four-step process, if you will, as we navigate suffering. Um, and that, you know, you kind of go one step one, step two, step three, and then things go bad, and you go back to step one. And, and, and it's also four things we kind of do simultaneously sometimes. So that's what we're going to kind of look at, these four, four ways that we navigate suffering. And so uh, they are, we, we pray, we grieve, we hope, and we trust. We, we pray, we grieve, we hope, and we trust. And so first, uh, when, when, we, when we experience suffering, we pray. Okay, when we experience suffering, we pray. The first thing we do when we experience suffering is pray, and the question is, why do we do that? Well, because we recognize 
in the midst of suffering, that the situation, whatever that may be, is bigger than us. It is bigger than us. It is out of our control. And so listen to the psalmist as he writes, as he prays in Psalm 77. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord, and in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Notice that the psalmist here is experiencing what has often been described as the dark night of the soul. That he is in anguish. He is suffering. And he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. This guy has tried everything else, he, and then he realizes that he must remember that God is there. He's tried everything on his own, and he realizes that he's got to remember that God is there. And so, you see, when we pray, what we are confessing is the reality that our circumstances are out of our control. They're out of our control. The reason that our whole community this week was praying for this little girl to be found safe and sound was because it was out of our control. As much as we wanted to, we, we could do a lot of things, but we could not will this girl to safety. We could not, by our own power, will the story to end well. And so when we pray, we are recognizing that the reality of our circumstances is out of our control. And that only God can fix it. Only God can, can do something to set it right. And so we pray. We pray to the God who parts oceans. We pray to the God who heals the sick, who can send fire from heaven. And we pray to the God who can even raise the dead. We pray to him in the midst of suffering because we know only he can help. And so sometimes we are praying on the front end of suffering, right? Right? Like there, where there's still hope that for things to be set right. We're praying that God would heal this person. We're praying that God would find or rescue this person. And other times, the tragedy has hit and it is final. And we pray because we're speechless. And we pray because we don't know what to say. Because we've lost so and so. Or whatever the case may be. And we don't know what to say. We don't know what to think. We don't know what to do. We know that God is the only one who can bring us any sort of comfort. He can only be the only one that brings us out of the despair that we feel. He's the only one that can deliver us from the dark night of the soul. And so we pray, Lord, help me. And this is where Romans 8 can be such a comfort to us. This classic passage that says, And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Here's what he's saying, that in those moments where everything seems hopeless and lost, that you've prayed for God to deliver, you've prayed for him to rescue, you've prayed for him to heal, and he's not answered those prayers, and now we're in the midst of suffering and grief and pain, and everything seems hopeless. When we, are, when we feel that ache to our bones, y'all know what I'm talking about? When you, like you just feel that ache of heartache like in your bones. When, we're, when you're there and the tears won't stop coming, and you pray, and you pray, and the words don't come out. When all that comes out is the sobbing and wailing of grief. What, Rome, what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that in those moments, the Holy Spirit is taking those groanings, taking those wails, taking those tears and those sobs. And the Holy Spirit is praying what we have no words to pray. 
When we, when we can't even, even muster up sentences or words or thoughts, he takes those wailings, he takes those crying and those sobs, and he prays on our behalf to the Father. What, a, what, a, what an encouraging thought. That when we want to pray but have no idea where even to begin but can't, just can't stop crying, that God, the Spirit, would pray on our behalf. He interprets our sobs and prays to the Father for us. When we are walking through suffering, the first thing we should do is pray. But I, but I want to talk about a really difficult question. Why is it that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers? Why is it that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers? Look at verse, uh, verse 4 in Psalm 77. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Listen to these questions. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In these words, we hear the cries of a broken man who has been up all night long praying, and he cannot sleep, he cannot close his eyes, but he's been praying and praying, and he's been crying out for help to God. And as, as the, the longer he cries and the longer he prays, he is only met with silence, the silence of God. And because of the silence of God, it prompts him to ask five difficult questions. And five questions that I think we often ask ourselves in the midst of crisis as we pray. As we pray, we feel that God is not listening to us. As we pray, we feel that God is not answering our prayers. And that we are met with silence. We ask these same questions. First, in verse 7, he says, will the Lord spurned forever? Has the Lord rejected me? Maybe he's not answering my prayers because he's rejected me for some reason. And then in verse 8 he says, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Since God hasn't answered me, it must mean that he doesn't love me. Because if he loved me, he would answer my prayers. Man, I know that I felt this. I felt this. Maybe you felt this. God, if you really loved me, wouldn't you want to answer my prayers? Doesn't love mean you want to give me the things that make me happy? If you really love me, why would you let this bad thing happen in my life? If you really love me, why wouldn't you just do something? And so we begin to think and wonder, maybe God doesn't love me. He must not love me. Verse 8, again, he, still, he says, are his promises at an end for all time? See, often in the midst of grief and suffering, our theology goes out the window. All the things we learned in Sunday school go out the window because we wonder if God is just maybe not faithful. Maybe he will not keep his word. Maybe the Bible is just wrong that God is not, is not working for our good. Maybe he won't keep his promises. And then in verse 9 he asks, has God forgotten to be gracious? I think we ask this question because we think maybe we're not important enough to God. right? Like listen, God's a busy dude, right? Like he's holding up the whole world with his hands. He's got billions of people across the world. They're all praying. Like y'all have seen Bruce Almighty. Remember when Bruce gets the powers and he just gets a, an email of all the prayers and he just can't answer them all? Like God, God's got to put up with all of us. Maybe you and maybe I are just not important enough to him. Maybe he's too busy. 
Maybe he's forgotten about us. Have you ever felt that way? And in the midst of suffering, maybe God's off worried about bigger and better things and he's not worried about little old me. He's not concerned about little old me. That maybe I'm not, I don't rise to the level of importance enough to garner his concern. Have you ever felt that you're just not important enough to him? And that he's off helping other people and doesn't have time for you? And then in verse 9, he asks the final question, has he in anger, has God in anger shut up his compassion? I think this final question is one that we all at some point go through. Because we've prayed and we've prayed, we've asked God to do these things, to heal these people, to save these people, to redeem these people, to preserve a life, whatever the case may be. And he hasn't answered. And, we, and what, we, what do we begin to do? We blame ourselves. Man, maybe God didn't answer my prayer and save the life of so-and-so because I have not lived a life worthy of him. And he, he's mad at me. Like maybe he's mad at me. Maybe he's angry at me because my life has not been good enough. Maybe God is angry at me because I haven't been going to church lately. Maybe God is angry at me because I've not read my Bible. Maybe God is angry at me because I've been living a sinful life and I haven't repented and, 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 and he's mad at me. And so he let so-and-so die because of me and it's my fault. We blame ourselves. I haven't been the good Christian. We go into suffering and we pray and God doesn't answer in the way that we want him to and these questions come up in our mind. Does he not answer because he's mad at me? Does he not answer because he doesn't love me? Does he not answer because he's rejected me? Does he not answer because he doesn't have time for me? Why is he not answered? These questions swirl in our minds. Why doesn't God, why doesn't his love and care and concern come to me? And I want you to understand something about these questions that the psalmist asks and we ask of ourselves. I want you to understand something really clearly. That while it is natural in our sinful state for us to ask these questions, none of them are true. None of them are true. The reason God has not answered your prayers is for none of those reasons. The psalmist realizes this in verse 10. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will appeal to the right hand of the Most High. The right hand of God is an expression in the Old Testament of, of the power and might and strength of God. And so the psalmist in this moment is remembering, and he goes on to talk about this further, but he's remembering that God has used his right hand to wield his might and power for God's people for years and years. He's remembered God's faithfulness. He remembered that when the Israelites had an army to their back and an ocean to their front, that God just moved the ocean out of the way. He is remembering that when God's people were about to die from a famine, that God had prepared for it years ahead of time to save them and deliver them. The psalmist is remembering over and over again how God stopped the Jordan River, how God knocked the walls of Jericho down, how again and again the faithfulness and the might and the power of God has been there for his people and that God has been faithful every single time and he has not abandoned them. That the right hand and the arm of God, the strength and power of God has been wielded for the people of God. And you see, we are to do the same thing. 
And even more so because we know more. We understand more than this Old Testament songwriter did. Because when we look at the right hand of the Lord, we see that this is not a symbol simply of, of, of strength and power, but it is a symbol that the right hand of the Lord is not just an idea, but a person. The right hand of God is not an idea, but it is a person. And that God sent not just his strength and power for us. He didn't just leverage his power and strength for us for his own gain. But rather he sent the right hand of the Lord to lose power, to lose strength, to lose standing. In order to come in weakness, to die, to be defeated by our greatest enemy. And to deliver us from evil, to destroy suffering and death, and to create a new kingdom. So here's, here's what I'm saying. Whenever we doubt that God loves us. Whenever we're praying and he's not answering and we begin to ask those questions, maybe he doesn't answer because he doesn't love me or because I'm sinful and he's mad at me or because he's, he doesn't have time for me. Remember in those moments that he is for you, that his plans for us are good. When we can know that because the right arm of the Lord was leveraged, not in power, but in weakness to deliver you. That God gave his only son, sent him to a cross so that you, that you and I might know him, be redeemed, and that suffering may be ended forever. God's unrelenting commitment to you is displayed in the fact that he nailed his son to a Roman cross. Romans 8 sums it up well when it says, He who gave us his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? It's like, he's given you his son. Do you think now he's going to hold, hold out on you on this other little thing over here? He's given you his son. Do you think now that he's wanting to hold out on you? I've given you enough. Stop asking for things. No. See, when we look at the cross and remember God's unrelenting love and commitment to us, when we, when we see the cross, we can remember the reason he's not answering my prayers is not because he doesn't love me or he's rejected me or any of those things. You see, God doesn't always answer our prayers. That's true. And sometimes we are never going to know why. We don't know why. But we can know what the answer is not. It's not because he's mad at you. It's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because of anything like that. He is not punishing you. And the cross reminds us of that. And so the question then becomes, why, why, why pray? Why do we pray then? We pray because only God can help. Because only God can fix our suffering. We pray because it is out of our hands. We pray because through prayer, we draw near to the heart of God. And we remember that even when things don't go the way we would want them to go, that the heart of God is for us and not against us. And so when we navigate pain and suffering in the trials of our life, the first step is always to pray. It is always to pray. Pray to the Father. Pray to the God who is a Father whose ear is always attentive. The second thing we do when we experience suffering is we grieve. Now I want you to look at John chapter 11. We grieve. Jesus' friend, this is a familiar story to you. Jesus' friend Lazarus has just died, and everyone is crying and mourning and this young, over this young man's death. And what is Jesus' response? 
I think Jesus models for them and for us how we are to deal with death, how we are to deal and cope with death. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary and Martha for their tears. He doesn't say, well, you ought to trust the plans of God. He doesn't say, you should have trusted God's sovereignty and put a smile on your face, and if God wanted him to be dead, he'll be dead, and you should be fine with that. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say you should have more faith. Stop crying. He doesn't say, well, he's in a better place now. And so you should be happy because he's no longer suffering. We should be happy about the fact that he's in heaven. He doesn't doesn't say that. No, when Jesus, the Son of God, experiences the death of his friend, he weeps. It's the shortest verse in in all of the Bible. And Jesus wept. He, He weeps. He doesn't try to explain it away. He weeps, but he doesn't only weep. The text has this fascinating um, phrase that it uses three or four or five times uh, in John 11, where when Jesus is encountering the death of his friend, it says that he is deeply moved in his spirit. And in the original language, there is this kind of word picture going on. And it's this picture of a horse that is bucking and raging and thrashing. It's a picture of a horse. You've seen a horse that you try to tame it. It, won't, it jumps up on its hind legs. It, it kicks its legs. It throws you off its back. It thrashes. It bucks. It rages. And, and that is the picture that we get of God as he is reacting to the death of his friend. That he is deeply moved in his spirit. That he is thrashing and bucking and raging. He is not simply sad about it. He is mad. He's ticked off about it. You see, Jesus is, is, is entering this scene where he sees death and he is reminded that he created the world, that he spoke the world into existence. And on the blueprints of the design that he made when he made the world, death was not in the blueprints. There was never supposed to be a, a, a thing where people die, where people stop breathing, where blood stops flowing. He created the world, and death was not a part of that creation. And so when Jesus sees death, he is mad about it. He is grieved to the depths of his soul about it. It ticks him off. And so when Jesus sees death, he's reminded of just how broken this world is, how cruel the world is, how cursed the world is. And he feels the aches and pains in his gut. You see, when, we, when you grieve, when you mourn, when you are sad, and even when you are angry over suffering and death, you are in good company with Jesus. You are in good company. You don't have to smile and keep your head up. You don't have to put on a good face and have more faith. It is okay to lay on the floor and sob. It is okay to be ticked off. It is okay to hurt Because that is exactly how God responded. It is the Christian response. It is the right response to look at suffering and of all kinds of death and and hurt and pain. For it, it is the right response for it to make you sick. For you to ache to your bones. For it to break your heart. It is right that we grieve. It is right that death and suffering make us mad because our Father did not make a world where these things were ever meant to be experienced. Death, as people say, is, it's, it's not another part of life. 
Death is not just another part of life. Death is a curse in this world that was never meant to be experienced. And so as we navigate suffering in our lives, we, we pray. We spend a lot of time praying. Sometimes groaning's too deep for words, but then we grieve. And it's right and good to grieve. And no one can tell you how long you should or should not grieve. Because our grief is a reminder that the world is not the way it was meant to be. It is a reminder that this, not, that this world will not always be this way. The reason that we don't just look at death as, as this evolutionary circle of life, that's just another part of life, the reason it hurts so bad is because we know the world was not supposed to be this way, and we know it won't always be this way. We know that death is not the end of the story, and so we grieve, and it hurts. You see, because Christians have a unique hope. And that's our third thing. We pray, we grieve, and then we hope. When we experience suffering, we hope. In John 11, after Jesus has been grieving the loss of his friend Lazarus, he walks up to the tomb where this dead corpse has been laying for four days, and he tells them to roll the stone away. And everyone's like, no, Jesus, I understand you're sad. I understand you want to go in there and see him. But listen, he's going to be stinking by now, so we can't move the stone. And Jesus says, move the stone. And they're like, okay, ain't telling Jesus, no. And so they move the stone. And then with everyone watching, like, what's this guy doing? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And I got I to wonder what the people were thinking then. Like, ain't no way that dude's walking out of there. Right? Like, what, what are the people thinking that are watching as Jesus is yelling at this tomb for this dead guy to come out when all of a sudden they're like, oh, my gosh, it's a mummy because he's still wrapped in his grave clothes and he comes walking out, taking them off. Can you imagine how their jaws hit the floor as this man who has been dead for four days walks out without a scratch on him? In verse 25, Jesus tells Martha, one of the sisters of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, I want you to understand, what Jesus is not saying is that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live forever in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you believe in me, though you die in this world, you will live forever in paradise and heaven with me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you believe in me, though you die, so you too will walk out of the grave just like Lazarus. He's saying That one day I will walk up to your gravestone, I will speak your name, and your dead corpse will get up out of the ground and walk without a scratch on it. That that old broken, busted hip won't be broken and busted anymore. You see, our hope as followers of Jesus is is not about heaven. Heaven's important, as N.T. Wright says, it's just not the end of the world. It's just like a temporary holding place. It's just like, hey, this is, this is what we're going to do for a little while until we get on to what's really coming. You see, our hope as Christians is that God is going to fix the dirt underneath our feet. 
He's going to fix the atmosphere. He's going to fix the brokenness in the world and everything in it that's broken. And then he's going to raise us from the dead so that we have a perfect kingdom to live in forever with him. Not up there, right here. The reason Christians for centuries did not burn their dead as the pagans did was because we believed that this body was important. The pagans burned their dead because they didn't need it anymore. They didn't need it. They're going to go off to Valhalla and fight forever or whatever. But Christians believe that that body is coming back. That's coming up out of the ground. And so we're going to put it in the ground so that one day Jesus is going to dig it up. And for all those Christians who were burned at stakes and their ashes fly through the wind, he'll put those ashes back together too. Christian hope is different than any other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says that at the end of life, you might go somewhere and find peace. You might go somewhere and find rest. You might go somewhere and find enlightenment. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says, no, you ain't going anywhere. I'm bringing you back. The Bible begins with a picture of a perfect garden. And it ends with a picture of a perfect city. A city where all of our hearts have ached and longed for. The city that we were meant to to live in and rule in. The city where all things will be set right. The city where we will find that little girl that drowned this week. Living the life she always was meant to live. Hope in the Bible is not filled with uncertainty. Hope, when the Bible talks about hope, it is not like, man, I hope the Bengals are going to be good this year. Full of uncertainty. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, not, that's not what kind of hope the Bible's talking about. It's more like, I hope Alabama's going to be good this year because that's, that's probably going to happen. Right? Roll Tide. Now, when the Bible talks about hope, it isn't full of uncertainty. It's a done deal. When the Bible says hope, it's saying, no, this is what is coming. And our hope is in this reality that has a period after it that's been set in stone and is coming to fruition. And our hope It's not that one day, maybe, if everything works out, hopefully Jesus wins and he raises us from the dead. No, our hope is that it's going to happen. And that it's going to raise us from the dead. And like Lazarus and like Jesus, every one of us who's put our faith in Christ, though we die, yet shall one day we be raised to new life. Because our hope and our faith is in the resurrection and the life who is Jesus. As Romans 8.18 says, As we begin to navigate this heartache and we try to have hope, Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now that's hard to think through. That's hard to muster. That the sufferings right now at the present time are not worth comparing. They're not even worth thinking about and compared to the glory that is awaiting that is going to be revealed in us. So I want you to imagine this. That all of the suffering today 
No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it hurts, once it is compared to the future, to that future restoration of all things, that future glory that awaits us, it will seem, this, this present suffering will seem but like a speed bump on the journey toward the glory that is ours in Christ. Our sufferings here and now, while horrific and truly painful and gut-wrenching, are but the first chapter and the longest book you've ever seen. And the pains of this first chapter will one day long be forgotten because our tears will be wiped away. And the things now that bring us sorrow, I imagine that after a few million years, maybe we will look back and remember the grief that we feel now, the grief of that old world, the grief of that cursed old broken world. Do you remember that moment, that grief that we had? And But for a moment, maybe somehow we will remember what that sadness felt like, that distant memory. And we will be all the more grateful for a Savior who did not leave us to this cursed world and broken world, but one who rescued us by not letting death have the final Even in the midst of suffering and grief and loss, we can have hope because Jesus is alive. And our present sufferings are not worth to be compared to what is coming. And as we experience suffering, you see, we pray because it's difficult. And we pray to our Father and we grieve and then we hope in the future and what is coming. And then finally, we trust. And I know that trusting God is hard. It is hard to trust a God who would allow you to go through such an experience, to to experience such suffering. Who would not stop, the God who would not stop the pain that, that you're feeling? How do you trust a God who doesn't prevent our suffering but chooses to let us endure it? How can we trust God? We can trust him because he is good. He is ultimate goodness. And his goodness is aimed at you if you're in Christ. You see, Joseph, remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? He was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery. And then eventually went into a dungeon after being falsely accused. A lot of bad stuff happened to Joseph, but yet, through the midst of all this suffering, all this pain, God was using it for good. Because he changed Joseph's heart. And he saved Joseph's family from famine. And consequently saved the the line that Jesus would come through to save us. Or you think about Jonah who suffered a storm and three nights in the belly of a whale. And which God used to transform Jonah's rebellious heart. And to show mercy to the pagan worst city in the world. And then you think about Jesus who went through betrayal and false accusations, was smeared and laughed at and taunted and beat within an inch of his life and then tortured through crucifixion to death. And yet, it was for his good and for our good. Because now, Jesus' name is the name above all names, and now God can redeem us and the whole world. You see, the suffering is never the end of the story. God is always at work for your good and our good even when you can't see it. He is good, and he is working for your good, even when you can't see it. Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good. Not all good things, all things 
He works together for good. And our problem is, is we can't see the whole picture, right? Like we can't see everything. We can only see what's right in front of us in this moment in time. We can't see it all. We just see right here. We don't see what's really going on. We don't have a God-like perspective on the world. Because if we did, think about this with me for a minute. If you could see what God saw, then you would agree with every decision he made, even when it meant causing you pain and suffering. If you could see things from his perspective, you would know that every decision he made was right. It's the right call. Many of you have met Eli, who is our foster son. And uh, just a few days ago, Eli, we we took him to the hospital for surgery. We had tubes put in his ears because... Um, I didn't know this, but Down syndrome kids, are, they have smaller airways and smaller ear holes and all this kind of stuff. And so he's more prone to ear infections, and he's had a lot of ear infections, and he's had fluid in his ears, which can lead to hearing loss. And, and it was for his good that we took him to get these, these uh, tubes put in his ears so that the fluid drains out and he doesn't get ear infections, he doesn't lose his hearing and all these things. So we went and took him to the doctor and, and <laughs> didn't feed him. You know, he couldn't eat breakfast, couldn't drink anything, and he is not loving that and doesn't understand he is starving. And uh, we take him to the hospital, and we go through the surgery and all those things, and it's great. And we come out, and now we, we get these eardrops that we've got to put in his ears. And, uh, and, and if, if you've met Eli, uh, you know that man is like the Hulk, okay? That dude's strong for almost three years old. And it's not, hey, Eli, can you lay down so I can put these drops in your ear? That ain't happening, right? And so, and so what do we got to do? You know what I'm saying? We got, I got to hold this dude down, arm bar his arms, latch his head still, and so his ear doesn't move, so Kate can very slowly drip four <laughs> drops into his man, this man's ear. Can you speed it up, honey? Right? And so I'm holding him, and he's, you know, he's trying with all of his might to get out. He is, he, this is not a fan of the eardrops, Right? He doesn't understand why my dad is holding me down and my mom is shooting stuff in my ear. He doesn't get it. All he sees is our hands doing something that he doesn't like, that's uncomfortable. He doesn't want it. But it's for his good. Because for the first time in this little boy's life, he's got parents who are actually working for his good. And if it means that I have to put him through some momentary suffering so that in the end he is better for it, then I will always make him suffer for his good. Because I'm committed to his good. And I'm sinful. You see, sometimes we see the hand of God working in our life or doing things. No, God, uh uh-uh. We don't understand why God's doing what he's doing. We don't understand his hand. We don't understand why he would allow such pain and suffering. But don't you see that even when you don't understand what his hand is doing, that it's for your good. It's for the good somehow, that he works all things for good. So when you don't understand why God would allow suffering in your life, remember the goodness of God made manifest in the cross and the resurrection. And remember, when you can't trust his hand, trust his heart. 
and you can't trust God's hand because you don't know what in the heck he's doing. Man, trust his heart. He's for you. He's for your good. And man, if it takes some momentary suffering to make things better, if you could see from his perspective, you would let him do it every time. You may not be able to fathom the reason God would allow this grief in your life. Don't try to come up with the reasons. Just trust that he's good. One of the ways that we can do that is by looking to the past. When you look at your life, man, do you see see all the ways in the past that God has been faithful to you? Do you see again and again how he's always been there for you? That every time you need him, that he was there, that he's never failed you. He's always been there. And that he always surprises you how he shows up. I mean, when I look at my life, I can see again and again and again how I would freak out and God would handle it. I would freak out about something and God would handle it. Remember his past faithfulness and trust that his faithfulness in your future will never end. But that he will always leverage his right hand, his son, for you, for your good, even if it means making you endure some momentary suffering, knowing that it will be but a blink of an eye in the story that is being told about you. That your suffering is but a small moment compared to the glory that awaits. And so as we navigate suffering, brothers and sisters, pray a lot. Grieve deeply. Hope in a resurrection and trust in the Lord's goodness. And he will get us through. When we experience suffering, we trust. And when we can't trust, we pray. And then we grieve some more. We try to learn how to hope again. And we try to trust again. And when we can't do it, we pray more. And we just keep doing it until we trust. And we can say, it is well with my soul. You know why that song is so powerful? Because the man who wrote it just lost his wife and all of his kids to a shipwreck. And he gets a letter telling him that his family's dead. And he gets on a boat to go to England to bury them, to have a service because their bodies are at the bottom of the ocean. And as he is sailing, he writes this song. He writes this song about the future that when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and the trouble will resound, it is well with my soul because I have a hope and a trust in the God who would send his son to the cross for me to make all things new. Weeks and, and months and even years now of, of pain and, and of heartache and of suffering. And, and there are so many people in this room who have their own stories uh, awaiting the call that my grandmother is going to die any, any moment. Many in this room who have gotten phone calls of Loved ones who have passed, the loved ones who are headed to the hospital. And Father, it is so difficult because we never get used to it. We never grow numb. We just get gut punched again and again. We don't know how to process. We don't know how to handle it. Father, this morning, would you begin to help us 
Would you help us to pray and to grieve rightly, to grieve deeply, and to hope in the future, and to trust you, trust your goodness. God, help us heal as a community. Every time we see these purple and blue balloons, we can't help think about our own kids. It makes us hold them a little tighter. Father, help us to heal. We can't help but think about our own loved ones who are no longer with us. As we approach the holidays and we think about another Thanksgiving without mom, another Thanksgiving without dad, without grandma, without grandpa, another Christmas without my little baby here. We remember the dates of their passing and every year we experience the grief again and again. Father, help us to pray and to grieve and to hope and to trust. Help us know it's okay to grieve. It's not wrong. It's not unchristian. It is precisely Christian to grieve deeply because this is not the way the world's supposed to be. Help us to trust you and to trust in the hope that we have. And that one day, a few million years from now, maybe we look back and go, oh, do you remember? Do you remember when that thing happened? And we were so sad, and we were so hurt, and we were so grieved. What a God we have that never lets the end of the story be bad. Never lets death have the final word. What a God we have who somehow made all sad things come untrue. What a God we have. That nothing can get in his way. And he wiped our tears. Remember that sad thing oh so long ago. I'm so thankful for a Jesus like ours. You're here this morning and you are in the throes of grief and you want someone to pray with you this morning because you don't have the words you've tried you just don't have the words and I would love to pray with you if you're here this morning let us pray with you there's just a man on the side that'd love to pray with you I'd love to pray with you it's okay come up here let me hug your neck and just pray over you so that you might begin to hope and trust Father give us the courage in Jesus' name we pray. All those people said, let's stand and sing.